Can the president or the governor of Texas or anybody make anyone happy about the crisis on the border? Doesn't seem so. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at QuorumReport.com, and here is the man of steel in news. He, he, you, you're never doing anything else. No. You don't have any real life, right? <laughs> you're like an iron horse of, of broadcasting and of print journalism. Jeremy Wallace at HoustonChronicle.com. Hello, sir. Yeah, uh, sir, the, the use of steel is appropriate given Abbott's use of the wall of steel he built down oh, yeah. in Del Rio, too. Which was really just a bunch of cop cars, yep. right? Yep. That's what he was talking about. And and you watched some of that, uh, the press conferences that he was holding. I guess there were at least, uh, I know there was one in Del Rio uh, a, a couple of times that he talked to the media. And in one instance, I need to apologize on behalf of media, I guess, because it, he opened it up for questions and nobody had any. What was that? I don't even know who was in the room, uh, but this was maybe a little bit of a failing. I don't know how many uh, multiple crises we have to have for people to have you know questions uh, just spring-loaded, ready to go. So Governor Abbott is trying to look as tough as possible on the border, Jeremy. And what I find fascinating right now is that neither Abbott nor President Biden, you know, a top Republican and a top Democrat, neither one of them can make anybody happy about this. It's just a disaster. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, you have how many uh, Haitian immigrants who made their way to uh, being under that bridge in Del Rio? I think it's uh, what, uh, 15,000, yep. 17,000, something like just that. Just over 15,000 was the last count, the high point on Saturday. Yeah, hard to tell the exact number. So Abbott was there with that, uh, yes, that, that wall of cars, which is not really a wall at all. I, I like how everyone feels like they need to build a wall, but they can't really do that. There's, you know, some cyclone fencing or a bunch of cars lined up or whatever. And they're trying to seal off certain parts of the border. Here's some of what Abbott had to say. When you have an administration that is not enforcing the law in this country, you see the onrush of people like what we saw walking across this dam that is right behind me. Because the Biden administration has been promoting and allowing open border policies. It has been the state of Texas that had to step up. One day there were countless people coming across the border. Then that very same day, the Texas Department of Public Safety put up all of these DPS vehicles and suddenly in an instant, people stopped crossing the border in this location. In this location, in this location, in this location, let me say that one more time if you didn't hear me, in this location. There are obviously people crossing the border in other locations. Just last week or the week before, whenever it was, uh, Abbott had said that he was going to unilaterally shut down ports of entry or points of entry, and there was some debate about whether it was points or, points or ports of entry. Uh, fact is, those are uh, a federal responsibility, and he had to back up. In about one hour, he said that he wasn't going to do that. Uh, and then he and Lieutenant Governor Patrick had to explain, this is, was their spin about it, I guess, that uh, that President Biden had actually asked for their help and you know wasn't doing a good enough job on the border, so they wanted to shut down some of the stuff that was going on. It seemed to me that as Abbott was talking about these things, about shutting down points of entry and trying to build a wall he sounds a lot not uh, like uh, one person that, that immediately springs to mind former president trump 
would be talking about building the wall and keeping people out of here, but also sounds a lot like his primary challengers for the governor's office. Uh, Don Huffines, Alan West have been saying this over and over again, that Abbott's not tough enough. Uh, Jeremy, could you imagine that the governor of Texas is standing there with all this, um, all this backdrop of, of the immigrants who are there and the uh, invasion quote unquote, as uh, Lieutenant Governor Patrick has described it, and Abbott trying to be as tough as possible. Could you have imagined that uh, he would not be perceived as tough enough by yeah. his fellow Republicans on this? Yeah, talking about, you know, an exclamation point on the environment we're in today, right? Where, uh, you know, for Alan West and Don Huffines, they they want to go further right. You know, they are the ones who were calling for shutting down the border uh, completely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the governor's not doing enough. And so it's amazing how much further we've gone right. You know, remember the Rick Perry days, you know, it's mm -hmm. like in where we are now when we talk about the border. It's much more aggressive. Uh, and look, this is an election goldmine for Republicans. They see this as the key issue, you know, that cuts across uh, and wins over voters. They think this is the winner, you know, particularly in a primary, you know, cycle to you know, protect themselves in their incumbency. We have often perhaps made light of the fact that state leadership in Texas only ever appears on Fox News Channel. Right? I mean, the lieutenant governor might as well have it as his theme song, the, the, the uh, you know, the Fox News theme song. Um, maybe this primary is going to play out nationally on Fox News. What do I mean? Well, Alan West and Don Huffines are not alone in criticizing Greg Abbott for what's happening on the border. If you continue to tell people in a primary electorate that the state's going to do things about the border, if it's still a mess at some point, it's your fault, isn't it? Right? If, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're always telling the voters that we're going to spend billions of dollars, we're going to put troops on the border, we're going to put those DPS cars there on the border, if there are still people coming in, whose fault does that eventually become in the minds of the voter? It would be your fault, right? It would be the governor's fault and lieutenant governor's fault. Uh, one of the leading conservative hosts on Fox News. Are his ratings better than Sean Hannity? Does it kind of go back and forth? Carlson's been up there in the ratings. Tucker Carlson, Fox News Channel, called out Abbott specifically and said that Abbott's been refusing to come on his show to answer his questions about this issue, about the border, and why Abbott has not done more about it, and then listen to what Carlson says he's going to do instead of talk to Abbott if Abbott just won't come on the show. It's been going on for months, and we've asked Texas Governor Greg Abbott many times to come on this show to explain why he hasn't called the National Guard to seal the Texas border and protect the rest of us from this invasion. Greg Abbott has refused to come on repeatedly. So pretty soon, possibly tomorrow, we plan to invite his primary opponents on the show to describe what they would do if they ran Texas. That might be an interesting conversation. We'd like to give Governor Abbott one more chance to come on sincerely. Please come on and tell us how you plan to save the rest of us from what is happening in your state. When you behave as if you have the authority to do almost anything unilaterally, who, who am I talking about? Governor Abbott, over the last 18 months during this pandemic, he has not just acted like he could, he's been actually doing it, right? That he, that he would unilaterally make one decision after another. When you claim that kind of power, it gives you the responsibility for what things are going on, right? And so I think that people like Carlson, Alan West, Don Huffines, and probably a significant, if not the majority of Republican primary voters will start to blame the incumbent 
for what is going on here when Abbott and Patrick and others continue to say that if Washington won't take care of this, then we will. And you can only say that for so long, right? I'm belaboring the point for a reason because they have belabored it forever. Um, You can only say that for so long before voters start to blame you if the thing isn't fixed. Yeah, and, and, and how weird is it to hear Tucker Carlson saying Greg Abbott won't come on his show when the night before Abbott was on Laura Ingram's show, you know, on the same cha- on the same network, right? You know, so it's like it's kind of a strange thing. And, and Abbott's clearly been on Hannity before. So, like, the same block of people who, you know, were watching that show had to be saying, well, why don't you just call Laura Ingram? You know, <laughs> she just talked to him <laughs> about this very <laughs> issue. So I, that, right. it's a confusing media moment to me as I watched all that play out. I'm like, wow, it's mm-hmm. like these guys really don't, you know, compare notes from one show to the next. And apparently Tucker Carlson does not watch Laura Ingram. <laughs> um, well, that would make two or three of us. Uh, I, no, I watch Laura Ingram every time the lieutenant governor is on for sure. Um, look, Abbott's not the only one taking heat from uh, the uh, further, uh, I guess, what, not, well, some people would say extreme. People might say just a different wing of the party than he belongs to, or he's certainly trying to belong to that wing. The president, Joe Biden, among the Democrats, has started to take a lot of criticism about this issue. Uh, There's a headline in the Houston Chronicle uh, where it said the left is upset with Biden about what's happening with this border crisis down in Del Rio with all these Haitian immigrants. And listen to this line of questioning. This is Jen Psaki at the, uh, she's the uh, White House press secretary, of course. And she was asked by April Ryan, who's one of the reporters at the White House, um, about the conditions the administration is sending folks back to when they deport them back to Haiti. What is there for them to go back to when these planes are taking them back? The nation is in unrest. The president was assassinated. There are gangs that people are scared to, they're scared of. Democratic rule is not necessarily in place. The people are calling, particularly those here in this nation, are calling for the uh, elections not to be held, you know, on time because of unrest there. And then you also have the issue of the earthquakes. So what is there to go back to? What are you deporting them back to? Well, April, I will say that our objective and our focus is not only in uh, implementing current immigration policies. We have also been working to provide a range of assistance, working closely with officials from the government as individuals are going back to Haiti to provide a range of financial assistance, to provide a range of technical assistance. That is ongoing. And we certainly support and want to be good actors in supporting uh, Haiti during a very difficult time, as you noted, with a government uh, that is still working to get back to a point of stability uh, with uh, recovery from an earthquake. And that's why we have a range of, uh, of programs, options, as well as financial support in place. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was uh, in Washington. Uh, he had uh, traveled. Did he travel to the border as well? Yeah, he was in Del Rio um, and, on uh, Monday, the day before okay, so that then, Greg Abbott got there. Gotcha. Then he was back in Washington in front of lawmakers in the Senate, and it was Democrats who were asking him about some of these images that they were seeing come out of the Del Rio sector, uh, where you had uh, Border Patrol, uh, um, mounted Border Patrol uh, on horseback, um, and just to explain to people, and I saw some people belaboring this point, that those were not actually whips. They're what's called split reins. But do you know what split reins are for if you're if you're riding a horse? To whip the horse. So it's, it's not, it's not um, without merit to say that the images coming out of there look like the Border Patrol are whipping some of these people 
It was a terrible image, right? And people are, I think, rightly upset about it. It looks like a human rights abuse. Um, I think that you can't just go based off what you see in, in one or two still images, right? That's not fair. So what Mayorkas said to senators was he was horrified by that and that uh, Homeland Security is investigating what happened. We commenced an investigation at my direction immediately. The Office of Professional Responsibility within the Department of Homeland Security's U.S. Customs and Border Protection, number one. Number two, we alerted the Inspector General uh, of the incidents. Number three, I directed that the Office of Professional Responsibility be present on site in Del Rio 24-7 to ensure that the conduct of our personnel adheres to our policy, to, uh, to our policies, to our training, and to our values. I was horrified to see the images, and we look forward to learning the facts that are adduced from the investigation, and we will take actions that those facts compel. I remember when President Obama was in office, and it was liberals and Democrats who criticized him as the deporter-in-chief. Yep. At that point, he had deported more people as president than any of the presidents uh, before him. Um, and often his administration was accused of uh, doing some things that seemed inhumane. Uh, and we would see it on the news, right? Uh, and, and we saw uh, criticism of President Trump in that vein as well. Uh, so neither party owns that, right? I mean, and, and both sides that, uh, have taken criticism. I see where some of the more progressive groups like ACLU and others have now said uh, that these human rights abuses happening on the border in Texas need to be investigated and need to be dealt with. And we're talking about this happening with a Democrat in the White House. So here you have Republicans acting as if the Democrats are not tough enough on this. And within their own party on the Democratic side, they're saying to Biden, you need to discontinue some of the policies of former President Trump. You need to take a more humane approach here and trying to approach this uh, in a way that is effective, um, that uh, ensures there is border security, uh, but also uh, ensures that these people are taken care of in a way that is humane. It's, an, it's a balancing act that I have, I have not seen any administration get right. Um, you know, there's no way to 100% get it right uh, because these are such difficult circumstances. Yeah, and you see the Biden administration continuing the Trump policy of turning back, you know, migrants uh, using the pandemic as the reason. It's like they're saying, oh, it's not a border, you know, policy. It's a health and, you know, public safety issue. You know, during a pandemic, we can't, you know, bring these folks in. But you know, even that is, like, you you heard it from Democrats all week. You know, uh, Mayorkas did testify before uh, the House Homeland Security Committee as well. And uh, Sheila Jackson Lee had a pretty strong, you know, you know, push against him, you know, about that, you know, she, of course, being from Houston saying, look, you know, we should be able to take in more of these, you know, migrants who are coming, you know, from Haiti. And, you know, and it's worth noting that a lot of these migrants are coming from Haiti via Chile, you know, Chile, yeah. you know, really changed how they uh, handle you know, Haitian, you know, migrants, you know, it used to be a very welcoming country to them. Uh, but now o over the last, you know, four to five years, they've become more anti-immigrant uh, in some of their policies. And so a lot of those folks that we're seeing in Del Rio are coming by at Chile. So when we're, mm -hmm. you know, when the administration is talking about sending them back to Haiti, they're, they may be sending them back someplace they haven't been in quite some time. So you can see where the conflict is. And, you know, Sheila Jackson Lee, you know, at one point in that hearing says, we can do better, you know, and I think that's probably a pretty good 
phrase for the entire situation happening in Delray right. right now. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, you look mm-hmm. at that and like, is there a way to do this better? Whatever we're doing right now yeah. does not look right and doesn't feel right to anybody in any party. Right. And, and no way, as I said, no way to get it completely right, but doing it better. Yeah. Think think of ways that we can improve on this. There have to be it have to be better ways than what we're seeing unfold right now. We'll keep an eye on all of that very closely. We did report at quorumreport.com uh, earlier this week on a security threat that was uh, first uh, uh, told to lawmakers. Um, I think it was Tuesday night, um, yeah, a couple of nights ago, where uh, the DPS... Texas Department of Public Safety was telling lawmakers and their staff that there was some security threat against lawmakers. And here's what was kind of different about it. Well, number one, it had to do with a specific bill, this new abortion law uh, that went into effect September 1st, uh, that allows for people to sue doctors and anyone who, quote, aids and abets an abortion. Um, Anyone who voted for that bill, and it wasn't just Republicans, by the way, anyone who was a yes vote on that was getting a call from DPS to say that there is a specific threat against you, at least one they take seriously enough to do a little extra. They were being um, a little more aggressive about trying to get a hold of the lawmakers, as I understood it. I had, t- I had talked to some uh, staffers at the Capitol, uh, I believe uh, Tuesday during the day, I'm trying to remember the timeline of it. Um, the uh, staffers had said that usually when they call about something like this, when the cops call up and say, hey, there's, there's some threat against a lawmaker, it's usually good enough for them to just leave, basically leave a message with their staff about it. In this case, the DPS was asking for specific personal contact info for the lawmakers so they could talk to them directly about whatever was going on. So we didn't get all the details on it, but we do understand that passions are inflamed about this. People are very upset about it. And that's reflected in a new poll that I see here at CNN.com. It was a Monmouth poll and it showed 70% of Americans disagree with the idea of allowing private citizens to bring lawsuits against abortion providers. Those numbers include 9 in 10 Democrats and also 4 in 10 Republicans. Listen listen to this, Jeremy. 81% disapprove of the idea of allowing just anybody to sue a doctor or anybody who helps a woman get an abortion. As we have described here early on in the year, the way this law is constructed is that let's say a a woman's talking about a pregnancy that maybe uh, she's going to seek an abortion and you say anything about abortion. You get your phone out and Google the word abortion so you can find a provider. You could be sued the way this is written. Um, One of the uh, concerns was that drivers with rideshare companies could end up as the targets of some of these lawsuits because they took the woman from her home or wherever she was to the clinic to get the abortion. We have already seen since September 1st, women be turned away from clinics because there are uh, those who feel that they don't want to put them, they don't want to make themselves uh, liable for one of these suits. Uh, we did see one doctor over the last weekend publicize the fact. Was this in San Antonio? Yes. The doctor in Bear County put it in the national news. He said, yep, in fact, I performed one of the abortions that is in violation of this new law. Why don't y'all sue me? That's the paraphrase. Uh, And then the natural consequence of this is that a felon from Arkansas who's on house arrest and and in part said he's doing it because he needs the money filed a suit in Bear County against this doctor. I don't know how the opponents of this could get better PR than that. Well, then you have the uh, right to life groups, Texas right to life, for example, 
one of the pro-life groups, anti-abortion groups, say that they never intended for people to use the law this way. Well, then why is it in there yeah. that the that people can sue anybody over an abortion? That seems a little yeah. We've been writing about but, we've been writing about that facet of the bill since you know February and March when yeah. we first came across it as like this mm -hmm. is you know a totally different kind of way to enforce an abortion restriction than Texas has ever thought of before, and probably mm -hmm. for good reason, right? You know they 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 at one point they were trying to make sure like you can remember. This law has no exception for rape or incest. And so, you know, there was a question that I, I had raised with Senator Hughes early on about whether the actual rapist of a woman would be able to sue her to prevent that, mm -hmm. you know, from her having an abortion. And so they ended up including language in there that if you are the convicted rapist, you can't, but they didn't knock anybody else out. You know, all felons right. and all other walks of life and anybody related to that rapist could still do it. And it's like, you know, like what a huge hole in this legislation. And if you want to find something to turn even moderate Republicans against the mm -hmm. law, you know, you put in a, no exceptions for rape and incest, and you're just asking for blowback from Republicans. Sure. Uh, Republican State Representative Lyle Larson from San Antonio has filed a bill now uh, that is not on the specialist uh, agenda, uh, agenda, the special session agenda, I should say. Uh, Larson's bill would add a rape and incest um, exception to the law. Uh, some folks said immediately, well, that doesn't address the as they put it, the unconstitutionality of the bill. However, it can just be a policy difference that some Republicans have. And most Republicans, I think, you know, polls have shown this and, um, you know, just anecdotally, vast majority of, of Republicans still support an exception along those lines. There was no exception made for that uh, in this bill. And so people are very, very angry about it. Uh, and we'll see where this goes. But I, um, I do think that you, know, you mentioned that we covered this months and months ago, that this is the way this was constructed. This is the way the law was going to be enforced. I didn't understand at the time maybe why it wasn't taken as seriously by some folks. But I did have a conversation this week uh, with a Republican lawmaker who privately said, look, in some ways, they're hoping the courts would bail them out about this. That they're hoping that privately that the courts would strike it down as unconstitutional on its face. But that didn't happen because now we have, at least not yet, we have a very differently constituted Supreme Court. And if people didn't notice that it was Republicans who were the ones doing the court packing over the last few cycles, well, they just were not paying very much attention. Um, the case out of Mississippi yep. is the one that I think is going to uh, tackle that it, that it will tackle Roe versus Wade directly. Um, the court, when it was asked for temporary relief about the Texas law, chose not to step in, although it is important to point out that Chief Justice Roberts did say that doesn't preclude other legal challenges to this. And as we said previously on this show, you probably have to have some of these lawsuits against doctors and against anybody who helped a woman get an abortion. Some of those lawsuits have to play out first so that people could show they had damage so that they would have standing to bring the suit. Yeah. Right. So that that I know that that's very frustrating for people and I get that. Um, but structurally, because of the way the Republicans wrote this, it's kind of the way it has to play out. Did you think that um, this week with everything else going on, President Trump would take time out to write a letter to Governor Abbott? Yeah, right. Like, if we needed one extra thing to kind of think about this week. 
breaking news just this afternoon here as we're doing the show on Thursday. Uh, former President Trump wrote an open letter to Greg Abbott, and he wants something to be added to the special session agenda as well. You want to guess which issue it is? So I'll, and I'll give you a hint. It's not the border. It's not immigration. Is there anything else that, that the former president talks about nonstop that he seems a little one-track well, mind the about? Clearly the stolen election, he has right? He blinders on to the rest of the world about? Is there, is there one thing... Is there one thing that he never stops talking about? Um, elections. He wants an audit of the 2020 election in Texas, which he won by six points, right? Yeah. So, but President Trump has said in some previous public comments that if there wasn't, this is the way he put it, if there wasn't so much cheating going on, he would have won Texas by more than six points. So he says to Governor Abbott, Despite my big win in Texas, and he, he says right there, it's a big win. What's the, what's the point? Despite my big win in Texas, I hear Texans want an election audit, exclamation point. You know your fellow Texans have big questions about the November 2020 election. Bills to audit elections in your great state, in the House and Senate, were considered during Texas' second special session. Instead, the legislature passed a watered-down amendment that doesn't even apply to the 2020 presidential election. So he goes on to say that uh, this um, proposal by Senator Paul Bettencourt and Representative Steve Toth uh, from Houston and the Woodlands, respectively, uh, that this audit of the last election and of elections going forward should be passed. And it makes me think about all the discussions we had, Jeremy, about the original elections bill that was debated here in Texas for the last nine months, finally got it done in that last special session, Governor Abbott signed it. And don't you think that those uh, folks who support President Trump and President Trump himself would be happy with that final work product because they finally passed the thing. Even after the Democrats fled to Washington to try to stop it, they beat the Democrats, they passed the election integrity bill. But guess what? Just like with so many other things, it's never enough. Yeah. It's never enough. It's never, ever enough. What is it that this uh, proposal would do? Yeah, and that's the thing. It's like it's clear that uh, uh, the former president doesn't understand what the legislation even was, you know, aimed at doing. Um, yeah, I know everybody's shocked by that. <laughs> you know, it's not like he's going to read, you know, the Texas legislature's uh, journals to kind of get a, you know, idea of what's happening. But, but this bill was, you know, it was from Paul Bentoncourt for a reason. Uh, he's a former Harris County election official himself. And yeah. during the early voting last year, when they were doing drive-through voting in you know, Houston. Uh, particularly yep. in some of those locations, the numbers of people who came to vote and the number of votes didn't line up. You know, so there was kind of an issue there. There, I think it was about 1,400 people total uh, that had you know signed up but didn't have you know, votes cast for them or vice versa. I can't remember how exactly it went, but mm -hmm. you know, Bentoncourt wants an audit of that. You know, anytime there's an irregularity, he wants the state to be able to step in and go investigate what happened. Uh, and not just rely on, you know, the goodness of an election official in a local county to do that. And so he was just trying to give some weight to uh, the Secretary of State's office to make Harris County explain 
what happened with that early voting on drive-through voting. So it was, it was, he was trying to be tailored in that and kind of had pushed back against the idea he was trying to do what they're doing in Arizona you know, mm-hmm. or Michigan or you know, any of those other places. Yeah. Like he, he said he wasn't trying to do a full audit of the 2020 elections. That wasn't the goal. But clearly, that's what President Trump read. <laughs> President yeah, Trump was like, it. "It's this sounds like my kind of stuff, Paul. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for all of their talk of trying to say that, no, that's not what we're doing. Yes, you need to do that. That's what President Trump <laughs> yeah. is getting at. And I think that this, uh, and who knows, we'll, we'll see what Abbott does on it. I mean, Abbott has said before to Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's suggestions that it's pretty goofy that anybody else try to tell him what to put on the special session agenda. Let's see what he says when President Trump tells him what he ought to put on the special session agenda. I think they were trying to change the subject a little bit here this week uh, because Governor Abbott did put a new item on the agenda, which was property taxes, which, as we've talked about here in 2019, that was the big thing in that in that session heading into the next election. The only thing Republican leadership wanted to talk about was property taxes and school finance, followed closely by property taxes and school finance. Nothing else. And Betancourt, once again, right in the mix, he's got uh, this proposal, which is Senate Bill 1, which, and here's here's Patrick pushing Abbott along. Senate Bill 1, as you may know, dear listener, uh, the way they number the bills in the House and Senate is the lower the number, the most the more important it is. So for it to be number one means it's numero uno. It is the one that they want to get past first. It wasn't even on Abbott's agenda when Betancourt filed it as Senate Bill 1 with the support of Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. The short version of what this bill would do is spend somewhere between 2 and $4 billion to give homeowners something around a $200 break on their property taxes. Something, something you know, depending on what your home is worth and all that. Um, you And here's the thing. It would be for one year. Yeah, exactly. This is this is not ongoing. This is, as I was describing it, very temporary. A cynic, which you know me to be an optimist, but a cynic might say that sounds like an election year gimmick. If it's going into the 2022 election, by the time we get to 2023, it's not even in effect anymore. And I don't know if you watched the hearing in the Texas Senate about this. Um, I watched at least part of it, and it was interesting to watch Republicans ask very tough questions about it. Um, Some Republicans asked, why is this only for one year? What are we doing if this is only for a year spending two to, and again, a fiscal note of two to 4 billion, that's quite a differential. I mean, if they can't say with any more specificity than that, then you're blowing a huge hole in the budget to do what? To give folks a $200 break on their property taxes. Larry Taylor, a Republican from Friendswood, Texas, his uh, district goes down into Galveston County, no liberal at all, and someone who's very familiar with school finance as the chairman of the Education Committee in the Senate, he said, you know, politically, guys, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is pretty close. He said, when when those property taxes go down just a little, voters, homeowners, they are not nearly as happy when it goes down a bit as they are unhappy when it goes way back up, which is what's going to happen, you know, come two years from now uh, when this thing would expire. I know that some other Republicans had questions about whether this is money that we even have. There is on the table in this special, and we probably haven't talked about it enough, but believe me, we will, $16 billion in federal money coming to Texas as part of one of the coronavirus aid packages uh, that passed out of Washington. The chair of the finance committee, Jeremy, said that they can't spend 
the federal dollars on a tax cut for people or on tax relief for people or anything to do with that. They have to, you know, they have to spend it on other stuff. And I saw some, some big city mayors this morning were saying that uh, they should spend it on things like childcare and housing and the kind of things that were intended by Congress. But funds are fungible, right? Yeah. If they have $16 billion coming in extra in their budget um, and they want to spend 2 to $4 billion on this property tax gimmick, as the cynics would call it, as the, as the great wonderful tax cut, as optimists would call it, they can only afford to do that. They only have the flexibility to do that because there's all this federal money coming in. Let me describe it this way. Sarah, let's say you have $200 in your bank account. Are you with me? Yes. Yes, you have $200 in your bank account and you want to spend it on what? Concert tickets. I'll just make something up. You want to, you want to spend $75 on concert tickets, but you can't really afford it because you only have $200 in your bank account. And it's like, you know, I've got to pay for, uh, you know, food. And, and by the time I get my next paycheck, I'll, that'll be for rent and whatever else. But say someone sends you an additional $200 and they say with that 200 that I'm sending you, you can't buy concert tickets with it. Are you still with me? Yes. You, you Are you? Okay. So. With the, with the $200 that I just sent you, I, I sent it to you, you can't buy the concert tickets for 75 bucks with that. Can you use the original $200 that you had for it? Sure. Yes. Yep. So and, and then you're left with enough money to make it to the next paycheck, right? Okay. I'm belaboring the point. Of, once again, that's my whole deal on this particular episode. To just let people know. It is a shell game. It is a way to try to change the subject to something that would, Jeremy, work in a general election. Because as we talked about all on the show last week, everything Republicans have laid out so far this year is about insulating themselves in Republican primaries. But they don't have very many good arguments in the general election. I think they want to go back to what worked in 2020 out of the 2019 session. It was about property taxes. So they want to play that hit and do that again. Well, and, and there's two reasons why this is dangerous stuff, right? You know, it's like, you know, for them, it's like this is going to open them up to like really giving, you know, super wealthy people a bigger tax break, right? Because, yeah, you know, for uh, they're saying an average house of 300000 is going to get 200 bucks. Yeah. You know, but what about that $15 million mansion? You know, it's like, what are they mm -hmm. going to get? They're going to get a huge, you know, tax break while renters and people who have cheaper houses don't get as much of a break and as you can see it just it walks them right into them you know giving the wealthy a break that the poor or the working class aren't going to benefit from and then the other point is and we've talked about it on the show a million times how often have you heard texas politicians say we're going to cut your taxes and mm -hmm. then people get their tax bill and nothing going down you know, there's a reason for that. Right. Even the, their best constructed plans can be, you know, sidelined by so many things that can happen on your tax bill, you know, where you can have cities and counties, you know, pushing the tax bill higher, a school district pushing mm -hmm. it higher, you know, a, a flood control district could, you know, you know, really ramp up. You know, there's going to be places that get no tax relief whatsoever at all. And it's like and we're going to be in that same spot where we were like, you know, boy, I can still hear Rick Perry telling us that our taxes were going to go down and nobody's mm -hmm. taxes went down. <laughs> and I remember yeah. Dan Patrick saying a few years ago how we were going to get tax breaks. Nobody saw their taxes go down, mm -hmm. you know, almost nobody. I'm sure a handful of people Some did, people but almost right. nobody got a tax cut in the last eight years that I know of in Texas. 
No, and, and when Betancourt says that the only way to offer tax relief to Texans is to buy down school district property taxes, that is not true. It, it's not true. It, 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 all you ever hear from these folks is that they're going to buy down property taxes. And the reason that ends up being a shell game is because the state is not directly in charge of that. that that's, that's coming from taxing entities at the local level, the school districts, the cities, the counties, the water districts, et cetera, you know, uh, and all of that. Um, they could take two to four billion dollars and do what with it? They could cut every uh, uh, body's sales, ta sales taxes. If they cut, that's because that's the revenue stream that the state has direct control over. The, they set that the state sales tax rate. If they wanted to cut that, they could do that. That would cut taxes for everybody. That would catch a lot of people who don't necessarily vote Republican um, and would catch a lot of people who don't necessarily vote. One thing we know about homeowners is they're more likely to be voters and probably in this state more likely to be Republican. So you start to figure out that the way these tax breaks, quote unquote, are being constructed, it's got a very tailored, targeted audience. Uh, one other thing here, redistricting starting to play out and people keep asking me all these questions about this things that i don't know the answers to most of it i i mean i understand the the process i've done this quite a few times now um but people want to know things like when are the texas house maps coming out i don't know when are we going to see the congressional maps well i don't know there, there, there are a lot of discussions that are happening right now uh, around redistricting and this is something that we're going to talk about over the next two months probably for sure a lot so on this It'll be the I won't belabor the points on this. Former Attorney General Eric Holder, uh, who was uh, AG under President uh, Obama, is the chairman of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. And in a report by Ashley Lopez at KUT at Public Radio in Austin, Holder said he's watching Texas very closely. And since he was AG, Jeremy, he's kind of made this his issue, talking about redistricting, redistricting, redistricting. Holder says that he's watching Texas because it's completely controlled by the GOP, the, the, the whole process will be, and the population of this state is growing very fast, and a growing population means growing political power as well. If Republicans are allowed to gerrymander on a racial or, or partisan basis in Texas, it can have um, national consequences. Absolutely. You know, in Texas, um, and, you know, for good or bad, we set the tone on all this. You go back to 2003 when there was a mid-decade redistricting, when the Republican Party had just done what? For the first time in 100 years, they had taken the majority in the Texas House. And even though redistricting had been done two years before that, in, in 2001, Republicans said, well, we'll just do it again. So you had uh, the former uh, House Majority Leader at the time, a Sugar Land Congressman, Tom DeLay. You know, at the time, they just gave him an office in the Capitol in Austin. And you know, he was kind of running the war room about what they were doing with redistricting at the time. So far, we see where this is headed, Jeremy, because we saw the Texas Senate map come out last weekend. And at least one Democrat is being drawn out of her district. That would be Senator Beverly Powell in uh, Tarrant County. She's from Burleson, represents you know big parts of Fort Worth. Um, you also see that Democrats, in their efforts to try to beat some of these Republicans in rapidly changing parts of the state, like Harris County, like Tarrant County, and some of these other parts of uh, parts of Texas, um, they very well will probably have their plans thwarted by what's going to happen in redistricting. I think um, Democrats were hoping to target at least three Republican state senators as they try to even things up in the Texas Senate. When you think about the Senate, 
31 people representing almost 30 uh, million Texans. If the politics of the Senate was really reflective of Texas, it would probably still be Republican, but it would be barely Republican, right? It would be, it, it would maybe, the Republicans would maybe enjoy a one or two vote advantage, right? But I mean, look at the last few cycles. Beto O'Rourke gets really close to Ted Cruz. And in that 2018 cycle, you had Democrats uh, coming this close, just uh, just barely missing it, that they, they could have beaten Republicans. First time in a long time for that to happen. Didn't quite make it. So I think it's fair to say the House and Senate would be still Republican, but not super majority Republican, not, not overwhelmingly Republican. Maybe we wouldn't see as many of these very, very conservative policies coming out of Austin. Instead, as we all know, who have covered this for a long time, what happens in the redistricting process is the majority party, whether that's Republicans or Democrats, they optimize the districts for partisan advantage at the beginning of the decade going off of the census data. And we have talked a lot here about, and you, you wrote it, you written about, um, the blue spine of Texas, how so many people are living along the I-35 corridor. That's becoming more and more democratic. Look at the places like Harris County that's becoming more and more democratic. Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, where I happen to be reporting from today, uh, more and more democratic. There are now, in the top 11 most populous counties, more than 17 million people living, more than half of the state in those areas that more than half, half of the population in those areas that are trending toward the Democrats. So the Republicans have a big challenge on their hands trying to cut that up in a way that continues to give them the kind of partisan advantage they have at the Texas Capitol. Yeah, it's getting weirder and weirder when you see like these, you know, districts where like you can live in South Austin and your, you know, state senator is going to be in Laredo. You know, it's like, you know, the, the commonalities there are, well, almost nothing. <laughs> you know, you know, they both have Whataburgers. <laughs> but other than that, I can't tell you, you know, how much those people kind of are related to one another. But, you know, but yeah, it's like certainly if Democrats were drawing the lines, it would be, you know, more favorable for them. And look, Democrats, you know, for the longest time in Texas did run this and they did gerrymander uh, districts. You know, I grew mm -hmm. up in it, you know, when Democrats were running the state and sure. they gerrymandered, too. But like you mentioned, delay took it to, you know, uh, absolutely higher level of, mm -hmm. okay, we don't care how bad this looks. If you ever look at the congressional districts in Houston, it's like it's like this weird swirl of weird shapes. And <laughs> it's just really sad, you know, to think that, you know, the, the way they've divvied up Harris County to minimize, mm -hmm. you know, the Democratic trend lines there. And I think that the Texas House is where this is really going to, uh, where the rubber will meet the road. Um, yeah. There's only there's only one office f uh, for which they draw lines that has a specific rule in the Texas Constitution that says they have to keep the counties as whole as possible, uh, and those are Texas House seats. So the, the the seats that they're drawing now, the Texas Senate, there's no rule like that. For the congressional seats, there's no rule like that. For the State Board of Education, no rule like that. But in the Texas House, if you think about the fact that more than half of the population of the states in those 11 counties, what does that do to the Texas House districts? The places like East Texas and Far West Texas will lose representation. Those districts will be uh, consolidated. And we already see the effect of that um, by the fact that you have some of those representatives from those areas saying that they're going to retire. 
yeah. when they otherwise might, might not be doing that. We saw just this week, uh, just yesterday, uh, Chris Patty, who's the chairman of a powerful committee in the Texas House, say that he's not going to run for re-election. He's from Deep East Texas. He's from Marshall. Um, and those areas are, if they're not losing people, they're at least growing slower than so many other places. Exactly. Earlier in the year when we saw the Census Bureau uh, numbers, um, El Paso was shown to have its slowest rate of growth in 80 years. That's happening at the same time that places like Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston, Central Texas, and Austin are growing at a rate never before seen uh, in the history of this state. Even during the height of pandemic restrictions, we saw a thousand people still moving to Texas every day. And that doesn't seem to be slowing down all that much. So um, we'll see how this plays out. We're going to cover it in detail. What we're not going to do on the show, though, is sit here and try to describe district lines to you. Because that, <laughs> if they have re- if they have clear shapes, we will like if it's a clear picture of a dinosaur, we will right. tell you that the congressional district looks like a dinosaur. <laughs> it might be like looking at clouds and telling yes. people like what what shapes you might see in the uh, in the clouds. Um, I'm told that it may very well be that we don't see congressional maps for quite some time. Of course, that that could be wrong, but uh, we'll see. This is why we show up for work every day. Who knows? Uh, but that the conversations about congressional maps, that they really haven't borne any fruit yet, that, that there are um, members of Congress from Texas, Republicans and Democrats, who want to have, obviously, some influence over this, but that the leadership at the state uh, capitol isn't really concerned with that just yet. They're working on their own districts. As I said, the Texas Senate map is out. The House districts, I don't know the timeline on that, but what I do know is that the chairman of the redistricting committee, uh, Todd Hunter, who's from Corpus Christi, what he has asked the uh, members of the House to do is have conversations within their own counties and within their own regions and start to really you know, get down to the, uh, the real deal of a real conversation of what they are willing to you know, maybe give up maybe what they you know are willing to make deals about so that that's happening right now and i know that within certain county delegations they're having some bitter fights already uh, and those are happening privately and they will happen more publicly as we go forward and start to see what these uh, what these districts really look like all right is that enough show yeah it feels like it just feels like it it honestly it doesn't feel like enough show. It feels like the perfect amount of show. If you enjoyed it, and you know you do, you should be a subscriber on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you listen to your favorite podcast. Give us the five-star review, best rating that you can, all of that. Subscribe at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.